if I'm closed down and just thinking about my daily life and who am I going to have for lunch or who did I just have a fight with this morning or how am I going to handle this boss or whatever it is, you know, I'm shut down to the wonder of the earth and the universe and the stars. And so I'm not going to get an idea. <laughs> so for me, who makes a living on my ideas, um, and prior to that, prior to when I made a living on it, um, I just, you know, just wonder means being open, opening myself up to what is around me and what's coming at me. Isn't that so true? When we get caught up in the daily grind or our to-do lists, we can miss out. Or I'd even venture to say that we can all miss out on wonder while we have our heads down at our phones. I wonder how much our smartphones have stolen from us when it comes to ideas and wonder. I am Harris III, and we talk about that, and as always, so much more, this week on The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. It's an interesting experience it's been over the last 25 years, certainly since beauty premiered. I can be a regular person because I'm not in front of a camera. I don't look any special. I just like a normal person. And I can engage in a real conversation with somebody and I'm curious about the world and I want to know about other people because I'm a writer. The minute, the minute they find out what I've done or if I say, the conversation shifts and it's no longer about between two people. Now it's become, it's between either a wannabe somebody who's asking me, you know, questions about how they can advance themselves, or it's a fan, and I, and I lose my anonymity. And it just shifts, you know? So, so if I don't want to do that, <laughs> I just say- You're a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> I work at a bank, Last time I was in Los Angeles, I got to sit down with the legendary Linda Wolverton. When did you begin to own the word? Not not just, oh, I'm, I'm becoming more interested in writing, but when did you, when I talk to a lot of people who work in different creative forms, there's always this moment where pretty consistently there was this epiphany and they go, oh, it is all about the power of storytelling. It's, it's not just writing words, I'm telling a story. Do you, do you remember that moment? Was it early on? Was it later in life? It was pretty early on. I uh, I, I love animal, animal rights. I'm very, I just love animals. And I was really upset 
about um, them killing baby seals for fur. And I thought, well, I can't go up there and do anything about it. And this is, I'm a child. I'm a child. And I don't, I don't have any power. I can't stop this. I was enraged. It's wrong and brutal. And it was, it hurt me. Um, and I thought, well, what do, uh, what can I do? I only have, I can make a story about it. I wasn't a storyteller yet, but I could make a story about it in which I will make you love that baby seal so much that you, especially younger children like myself, you would never grow up to be anyone who would brutalize that animal. Um, so I started writing. I started writing to, to make people love what I loved. Yeah. We, we first talked on the phone maybe, I don't know, four to six months ago, connected through a mutual friend, and you said something that I have not been able to forget when I spoke with you because I've, I've kind of, you know, in my 30s, I've ventured into this. I'm almost like the ambassador for storytelling because of the power that stories have. And I use that word a lot. I use the phrase that, that storytellers are these sort of cultural architects because we're the ones that get to decide what the future of our world looks like because stories are that powerful. And you, and you paused and you said to me on the phone, you, says, I, you said, I agree with you because stories quite literally saved my life. I don't know if you remember saying that or not, no. but what, what does <laughs> but that, <it's> true. <laughs> so what, what does that mean? Well, I had a very difficult childhood. I'm a member of Me Too, even though I'm not uh, vocal about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be high on the list of Me Too. And um, the only way I was going to be able to survive and not become a drug addict or a um, suicide victim or the only way I was going to survive was be able to go into another world. This isn't about, this is about me personally, not about the power of story. This is about how it enabled me to actually leave my body and live in a world where I was, I was more powerful and I could change things. So without art, I truly believe the art saved lives. Without art, I don't know if I would be here. So you did mean it literally. I meant it literally. Yeah. 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 How do you feel about that phrase that that artists and storytellers are these culture shapers, the people that get to decide what our world looks like and feels like? I think it's true. I think I th I think that it's really important that they find the way to to make their voices heard. I'm certain there are so many frustrated storytellers out there who haven't found the the window, you know, the window to help people hear their stories, which would change the culture. Fortunately, in the last what I would say what 10 years or 10 years since social media, more and more common man have found been able to find a way to speak. And unless we hear all those voices, you know, we're just going to stay on the same path. So um, we're absolutely culture changers. And then every time something really uh, lands large in the, in the cultural conscience, it uh, does raise the sea. Um, like get out. That changed the conversation completely.
I believe. And it did shape our culture. Um, and that's what I've been trying to do and using Disney as my ma particular megaphone. <laughs> Linda got started as a writer the way a lot of kids get their first taste in showbiz, local theater. When she was in the seventh grade, her mom dropped her off at a junior theater company, and she met a director who was writing a loose adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, of all things. That gave Linda her first taste of not just creating new stories, but creating whole different worlds, and it became a theme. In fact, she'd go on to create some of the most popular worlds of all time. What was it like venturing into the Beauty and the Beast, Lion King days as a female writer in what at that time was a pretty male-dominated industry. Especially animation. Animation yeah. was very male-dominated because it was, especially Disney animation, because it really came about in the 50s. You know, obviously it came up during the 50s and or when Walt really started to pay attention to animation. Um, that's where he started. And I think the sensibility of the 50s kind of never left. So the world kind of moved on. But that, it was a, it was a very enclosed world. It was, um, there was the nine old men who were part of uh, Walt's original uh, group. I couldn't name them now, but um, they're all revered. And Walt was revered. And so if you were going to veer from that, it was kind of considered criminal. So I came into that environment as a feminist. Um, and I'm a feminist, you know, early on feminist. And so I came in as a feminist and I was looking at the Disney heroines and they were all victims. They were all victims. And, and again, again, you have to remember that, that they were a representative of their time. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Cinderella or you know Snow White at all. They represented their time. They represented what the perfect woman was then. But when I was invited to write Beauty and the Beast, I didn't think the women of today would buy it. Hmm. I just didn't believe that we could, after, the, after the, the feminist revolution, which will still was in its you know sure. struggle and turmoil, I just didn't believe anybody would, would go back to that. I might have been wrong in some <laughs> instances, <laughs> um, but I really wanted to create a character that uh, was a, a, a girl who was obviously not all based on her looks, who was based on her what she thought and what she read and what she wanted to do and how curious she was about the world. And she had a fantastic idiosyncratic father who opened a window for her to be her own person. So that's what I wanted to do. Was there pushback at first to that so idea? So much pushback. Really? So much. Was it because this is too creative or was it right away like, no, we see the gender stuff that's at play here and this makes us uncomfortable? Nobody saw the gender stuff. I snuck it in and nobody <laughs> noticed it, really. Nobody noticed it. Howard Ashman and I, um, who was the lyricist along with, and Alan Minkin, his partner, was the composer. Howard Ashman and I sat in a, in a hotel room in, in um, upstate New York and conjured up this feminist, secret feminist Disney heroine, Belle, and the Beast. 
And I don't think we ever said that to each other because even the word feminist at the time was not viewed as in a really positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were creating that character. And Howard was sick. He had um, HIV, AIDS. He did ultimately die before the movie premiered. Hmm. Um, so we conjured this character together. And um, I had, you know, the enormous support of him and also Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was running the studio at the time, was who's one who sort of like found me and put me there, was also supportive. Um, but when they left and I was alone in the room with, you know, 60 hostile faces, it was, it was really tough. Wow. It was tough. It really was. It wasn't easy. But I really, I believed it was important. And I knew that the, I really believed the impact of Bell could change the culture. I believed it. And maybe you felt like it didn't right away, but there were young girls who had a new heroine. And now those young girls are in their 30s and 40s. And so I think sometimes stories have to, they have to have this ripple effect and the desire of the change that you want to see culturally as a result of writing and telling that story mm-hmm. sometimes requires some patience, right? I agree. And so, you know, there's so many people that have been a part that you can never just credit a single person. But I really think a lot of the conversations that are happening right now in 2018 are a result of the many things that were done decades ago. And I think Beauty of the Beast is an example of one of those things. Um, so I think it was amazing. I can only imagine how much courage it took uh, every to day. walk through that process. It, every day. <clears throat> Do you just come day. home from the Disney offices and <laughs> I would, bang I, on the wall I or cry on a couch? I didn't want to go back. It was really hard. I was alone. I was really alone. I'm, I was married at the time, and I would say to my husband, should I quit? And he was really supportive. You know, you can, you can, you can quit. Um, but I felt it was too important. What she, I believed in her, and I believed in the story, and I, lived, I believed in the beast. And I know that Howard really had so much of his own personal stake in the beast because that was this monster that he was fighting himself and his personal, in his own health issues. I know that the beast represented that for him. It was just, I was felt like I was carrying this flag. And I would zip up my, fla- my, uh, my imaginative flak jacket, I'm going, I can, I can take anything because this is important. And it was really, really hard. Very, very hard. The room would go quiet when I walked in. Wow. You think that was intimidation? No, no. I just don't think they liked a strong woman. And I was strong. I don't think they liked me. Honestly, that they didn't like me. They wrote a book about it. There was, I was, no. There was a book about the making of Beauty and the Beast Ten years after Beauty and the Beast premiered, and some of the people that were there then, the store, some of the story people and the, one of the directors, actually spent an entire page of this book talking about what a pain I was. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I mean, you, uh, they obviously liked you enough because you continued to go back and work on additional projects, right? <laughs> I was hired to go back <laughs> by Jeffrey. And especially, you know, once you have a hit... Once you have a successful hit, of course, then they said I didn't write it. I don't know who did. But um, I believe that I was ultimately, I was a rock in the middle of the river that had been going along this way. And the rock changed the course, and I just wouldn't move. I wouldn't go backwards. And the, and the river had to kind of go around. And there were, were hundreds of people who worked on that movie. It wasn't just me. But Howard and I... You know, we, we really felt we had a vision. 
Yeah. No. So. Yeah. How was it to go from Beauty and the Beast to a movie like The Lion King, where it felt like maybe it wasn't it wasn't hitting as many personal passion points? Was that different? Was your creative process different? Do you feel less emotionally attached to that film? I love The Lion King. Um, I do feel less emotionally attached, but I do understand the absolute impact of The Lion King. Lion King was more than a game changer. The Lion King touched something in everyone, and maybe more in, in, in women than men in beauty, but The Lion King um, moved people in the deepest parts of their soul in ways that we didn't understand when we were making it. Why do you think that is? I think the music has a lar large part of it. Um, I think the, the, the Africa-ness of it all, you know, and also the story of this, uh, this young cub who made a horrible mistake. I like to write about characters who make mistakes and come back from them. That's kind of what I do. I realized that like three movies down the road. <laughs> oh, look at that. There's the beast who made a mistake. Simba made a horrible mistake. Maleficent made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, but those are the ones that represent real life, I think, you know, because we've all been there. Yeah, we can that's all That's what make makes mistakes. those characters so relatable. Yeah, that's what basically what I want to say is like you can make a horrific mistake. I want to say this to the young people of the world. You can make a horrific mistake. It doesn't have to taint your life. It doesn't have to define you forever. You can come back from it. All it took for the beast was uh, one little move, one little move, and the whole thing changed. It's in the song. You know, Simba had to run away um, and run away and hide his head and just pretend it didn't happen and he was somebody else until his destiny called him back. Um, and then Maleficent, obviously, you know, she fell in love when she thought she couldn't love anymore. Linda also wrote the screenplay for Tim Burton's 2010 Alice in Wonderland adaptation. She was actually on board before either Disney or Burton and became interested in the idea of a grown-up Alice who returns to Wonderland because she's needed again. She says she was intimidated by the story, and who can blame her? It's Lewis Carroll but grew intrigued by the idea of writing a young woman in a strict Victorian upbringing who realizes that her real life lies in the wonderland she visited when she was a little girl. Just interacting with you and being in your home, you know, wonder seems to be this something that has definitely awakened you. There's like a childlike character to you, which is awesome. And I've experienced that in a lot of the world's most creative people. So what does the word wonder mean to you? It means being open. I think, being open to what the universe is sending. If I'm closed down and just thinking about my daily life and who am I going to have for lunch or who did I just have a fight with this morning or how am I going to handle this boss or whatever it is, you know, I'm shut down to the wonder of the earth and the universe and the stars. And so I'm not going to get an idea. <laughs> so for me, who makes a living on my ideas... Um, and prior to that, prior to when I made a living on it, um, I just wonder means being open, opening myself up to what is around me and what's coming at me. And I'm always curious, always curious about other people and other cultures and what's going on everywhere. 
And I remember being very upset one time because I realized I was going to die in my life and not know everything. <laughs> there were things I was not going to ever know. That was really upsetting to me. <laughs> I, I was almost about to go a new direction there. I'm, but but I'm most curious in this moment, why, why do you think everything in the world is conspiring against wonder? Because it sure seems like in many ways it feels threatening because it's disruptive, I guess. Yes, because people, I guess people like to, it's safe to stay in, you know, the institutions that exist now. Certainly the institutions themselves want to keep things the way they want to keep the status quo because any threat to the institution makes the institution go away sometimes. I mean, look at around us right this minute, the, the bastions of, of how to even get an education are changing. You, you know, it's all changing because the young people have opened up the world to each other. They communicate with each other. They don't have to go through, you know, the old um, media. They don't have to do that anymore. And that's terrifying. Look at, look at uh, Elon Musk. You know, he wants to change the world and make it a better place. And that means that he's, it's going to threaten the auto industry who, you know, who've been in a very powerful position. But I, I, that's what people who are visionaries do. And that takes wonder. And that takes an imagination. Because you have to be able to see things that aren't there. You have to see things that aren't there. Yep. I see things that aren't there. Is that why it's possible that maybe you didn't feel liked in those early days of making Beauty and the Beast? Is that wonder was awake in you and you were seeing things that other people couldn't see and it felt threatening? I think so. I think there's a, just a simple threat of we don't do this this way. We do this way. And this is what our heroines are, our princesses are. Um, no one was bad. <laughs> That's just the way that they believed that the Disney message worked. So obviously wonder is linked to innovation, you would say, in every facet of life and every industry of business. I think so. I think it is. So, and so storytelling. Yeah. As you said when we just started talking. Yeah. So what is it about Wonderland? <laughs> Do we, should we spend more time in Wonderland? Is Wonderland this state that we're all running away from? I don't want to get too meta, but. I've been dying they, to ask you these questions. Everybody wants to go there, though. They want to go there. You know, you can go there. You can go there. There's nothing stopping you. Does it involve some sort of drug at a nightclub in L.A. somewhere? For some people, it does. <laughs> it doesn't for me. It yeah. doesn't for me. You know, you can go there. I went there. I went there and came back out again. You know, I go there a lot. Alice went there a lot. You know, and when she came out... She went there when she was young. And then, you see, the thing is about Alice was when she was young, she was open, that kind of open. And she, if you've read the books recently, she's just a, just a tenacious, really, really smart, precocious little girl who asks questions of her environment and isn't afraid. She has no fear at all when she's in Wonderland. She's just curious about the things. There's no, if you, if you look at the books, there's no really strong forward narrative, which was also another challenge because he's just dealing with ideas, you know, and it's, there's no strong storytelling structure. 
it's a very it's very episodic. She goes from one place to the next place to the next place. But when she when she comes back out and then and then later and she's an adult, she's so intrinsically changed by that experience. There's no way she could be normal in her world. Yeah. How could she be normal in her world after she's had that? And she thought it was a dream. So if we spend time in Wonderland when we leave, we should never be able to see ourselves or the world around us the same again. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. You have to be a, I mean, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's possible. Yeah. So then let's get practical then. So you go to Wonderland on a regular basis. Yeah. You like to create other worlds. Yeah. Talked about that. That's your thing as a storyteller. How do you do that? And how would you encourage others to do that? For the person who's listening, who's just saying, I hear you, but there's just, I can't, I can't get there. Wonder's dead. Um, and that, that's obviously affecting everything from the joy that they experience in the life they're living to the work they're doing in their own creative process. So do you have some sort of, is it, is it this room? Is it this room that's magic? And I know the answer is no, because you've only, you've been in this house, you said for 10 <laughs> years and you've cranked out some amazing work before then. Before, so. before I was here. Yeah. It's the couch. <laughs> that's the couch. That is the couch. Let's see, did I, I did a homework bound on that couch. I think I did do a homework bound on that couch. Did beauty on the couch? It's possible. So it's the couch. It could be the couch. Is the couch for sale? No. <laughs> it's an old Victorian couch that I got out of a house. A, a, a wonderful old lady passed into another life and um, her house, and she had a lot of Victorian furniture and I purchased the couch from her. And actually we're, it's right still on the leg where I got the where I got the couch, the, her name and Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So in addition to the couch, what do you do? I mean, do you start every writing day the same? Do you wake up and mm -hmm, come in? Do you have a routine that you go through? Yes, and it does not involve sitting in this room. It involves moving through space. I walk. Process wise on the road practical, like mm -hmm. how do you get your ideas kind of level? Mm -hmm. um, I often say I go to the idea store and, you know, pick them out there. But people aren't laughing about that anymore. I think that's pretty funny myself. It's, where's the idea you store? Don't know where it's, oh, it's Does it have an address? Corner. Oh, it's in downtown LA. Okay. You just get on, you just can go down there. Oh, awesome. It's on 6th and Orange, I think. Or Perfect. Something. You could just go there. I, I'm going to do that know? this afternoon. You didn't know? It's a big secret. No. Yeah. Go down there and get the idea and the ideas. Are they expensive? No. But there is a cost, I bet. There is a cost. You have to let go of the real world just for a little while. You do. That's the cost. They're free otherwise. Why is it so painful to let go of the real world? I think it's scary. You know, it's scary because the world is where we have our feet on the ground and, you know, we know what we're doing. And um, if we stay in our little box, we'll be safe. And being courageous is part of it. It's part of it, being courageous. So you succeeded as a writer because you have found courage? Yeah. And what has been your source of courage? Um, overcoming my childhood. Yeah, pretty much. I know I can do anything. So how did you do that without merely treating it as escapism? Or to one who's listening going, oh, so you just... You're fine because you haven't dealt with it. You're just escaping from it by running away. And oh, living I had a in lot of therapy. Worlds. Believe me, <laughs> I dealt. I dealt. 
Um, no, I just no. Honestly, storytelling is the is the panacea. It was the panacea for me, as we talked about earlier. It was just a way for me to make sense of it. I wrote a book about it. The first thing I ever wrote, first actual book. I think it's up there. It's called Running Before the Wind, and it's a story of. Uh, it's I just wrote my own story in a fictionalized character and I fictionalized her issues but they're all my issues no I fiction no I didn't fictionalize her issues they were my issues I fictionalized her environment but I used so many of the uh, elements of my own I used my own family and it was the thing that opened the door for my me to be able to write anything else because I and my friend told me to write it I was telling her my story we were visiting my hometown and she said, you need to write that. And so I did. And it was published. And I, so I could take all the pain and all that stuff and put it in this book on the page. And then it was published. It doesn't have to be published though, people. It doesn't have to be published. <laughs> Just put it on the page. And then I could take that and I could put it on the shelf and go, okay, that's that. Now. What can I do? Maybe you've heard of a psychologist named Dr. Bethany Haley Williams, who's done a lot of work in the Congo with child soldiers. She found the best way to work with kids recovering from something as traumatic as war was through art therapy, where she lets these kids draw what they're feeling and how they see themselves in the world instead of just trying to explain it. In a way, that's what Linda's talking about, finding your own story and telling it to yourself as a way to make some sense of it. If Alice were alive in 2018, I don't know, maybe she's a grandmother. How would she be treated by the world right now? Would she be in some insane asylum in a retirement home written off by her family because she's the weird old lady that has these strange visions and her imagination is a little bit too active. I don't think she'd even be here. I think she'd be back in Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she'd even be here. However, I, I don't think she would have allowed her life to go that way. She's so empowered by then that um, she could do anything. She probably is uh, on a trek in Tibet, you know, or, you know, doing really interesting things. Um, and, you know, leading young people to, to out of curiosity. And then she's never going to quit with a curious brain. You know, it can't stop with Alice. And she believes anything is possible. Yeah. Sometimes six times before breakfast, I guess, right? Before breakfast. <laughs> so do you, uh, when you sit down to write a story like Alice uh, or any other story outside of Alice, do you sometimes try to just embody the character of Alice? Has the Alice in Wonderland story shaped, did it shape you in the process of writing it? Did it change you? It was a very profound experience writing Alice on so a lot of different levels. I had uh, been going through a divorce at the time, actually, and I moved to New York with my daughter, and I realized when I got to the apartment in New York that I had no place to write. There is no room I put for myself. There was, it was a, 
apartments are really expensive. I couldn't afford a three-bedroom. So there was the bedroom, there was my daughter's bedroom, there was the living room, and there was the kitchen. That's it. And I had three dogs and a cat. (laughs) 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 And I was sitting there, and I think, you know, the move was so much driven by the trauma of divorce, but I ended up writing it in the bathroom because I couldn't, I was the only place I could be, you know, you know, alone. Um, but I, and then I had writer's block because I was intimidated by Lewis Carroll. I had sold the concept to Disney. They were paying me and I was stuck and I don't get writer's block. I was scared. I had promised a script by February. It was Christmas. I was actually scared because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't write. I couldn't write anything. It wasn't coming out. Um, and my daughter and I took a trip to London for Christmas which isn't not the best time to go to the UK because <laughs> everything's closed for Boxing Day for days and days after. Um, but it was in the park, walking through Hyde Park, and I came upon a bust of Lewis Carroll. I have since looked for that bust, and I cannot find it. And I actually asked his permission. I asked his permission. I said, I am not trying to tell your story. I'm not trying to be you. I am not trying to do any... to." Uh, take away what you've given the world, your beloved characters and your beloved story. However, I need a little help here. I need your permission <laughs> because I'm not trying to tell your story, but I think it will help to to put more into the world. Um, and that opened everything. I started writing it. The ideas started coming. The language started coming. You know, and the biggest challenge was how do I, how do I fit my character into this, into the language? Because the language is so much a part of Lewis Carroll and what he wrote was amazing, the language. And so uh, I tried to come up with words that sounded, that would, not like Lewis Carroll, that they would fit in the world of Wonderland. Wonderland. Um, and that was fun. I made a long list of words and, uh, you know, it was really a fun thing. And... Um, yeah, the ideas just started just coming. Yeah. Describe working with Tim Burton. He is enigmatic. That's a, Tim- good, that's a good word <laughs> I don't hear very often. He doesn't live in the real world, really. <laughs> and he does wear striped socks. <laughs> did you guys meet early on at Disney? Nope, we okay. did not. I wrote the script. And there's a couple of other directors that were interested in it. But the producers um, were really, I think they had Tim in mind. And so they were they were really holding it back, holding back, agreeing to hide these other producers. And suddenly the script landed with Tim. He read it and he said he wanted to do it. First draft. That's kind of unheard of. So I went to uh, meet him in London at his house. Which was again, wow. You know, he lives in Arthur Rackham's house. Wow. Well, I'm a huge Arthur Rackham fan. <laughs> I didn't care about Tim. I met Tim. I was like, yeah, yeah. Where's I'm look at house. this? This is Arthur Rackham's house. Where's the garden? Really, I just couldn't. I just show me the garden. <laughs> Whatever, Tim Burton. Look at this. Yeah. Um, so that's when we first met, and. Um, you know, he was really great. He was fantastic. He wasn't, you know, a lot of directors really just want to impose themselves on your story. They want to take it away from you and just sort of plant themselves on it. 
you know, Tim wasn't like that at all. Um, he was very much about, about um, making the story better, but not pushing me, you know, not sort of forcing it. He would say, just try it. Just try this. And I would try it, and it, more times than not, it worked. And then I had the opportunity to meet with both Tim and Johnny Depp at the same time. And that was quite a trip. Why? They were like little kids playing. They're like two little boys playing. They had a whoopee cushion. Seriously. <laughs> they did. They had a little whoopee cushion. <laughs> and they were trading it back and forth. And I was trying to be the serious one to get like what I needed from, you know, I needed input from Johnny. <laughs> I felt like a school marm, you know. Do you remember the first thing that Tim told you about the script and why he liked it? Why was he drawn to it? He liked it because I had found a way to give it a narrative structure because he was stumped as well by um, the episodic nature of, of the original and uh, by making her an adult and go back and underline being in trouble. And again, this all changed quite a bit between my original draft and the final movie, which was really inhibited by the budget and page number. Um, so we had to cut out a lot of the real backstory of what was going on at the time and um, the effect of the Red Queen on uh, Wonderland. But there was a reason to tell a story. There was a story. And that's what he was attracted to, plus be able to create that world. Alice in Wonderland got a sequel called Through the Looking Glass, and Linda is pretty candid about her feelings about it. The script she wrote changed a lot of hands, and the director rewrote a lot of it, and what ultimately got produced was this sort of hodgepodge of several competing visions that Linda says she's just not really proud of. It's a pretty common story in Hollywood. Writers get overruled a lot. It's not a writer's medium feature films. It's a director's medium and the directors have all the power. And if you talk to directors, they say, it's funny, recently I talked to a director, he said, I thought that they treat writers better. Like, no, 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 no. They treat directors better because the director is the captain of the ship once you're, once you're launched and once you're green lit and there's all this money involved. Um, so the director being male or female doesn't really matter. Most of the time it's male. They're given the, you know, the, the power to do whatever they want with the script. And not all directors are storytellers. Most aren't. Writer directors are, um, but most aren't. So the, the writer, honestly, to many directors, I think the writer is a bit of a threat because they really are the original source. But the director then wants to come and make it his vision or her vision. This is not always the case. Sure. And I work with a few really collaborative, uh, respectful directors like Tim Burton, you know, who really understood where the story came from. And um, but oftentimes, did you, did you feel honored by him? I guess it sounds like, yeah, completely, completely honored, both by him and Johnny Depp. You know, um, I was given a, an award by the Animation Guild, and it was right when we were shooting Alice, and we we're on the set. And uh, Johnny Depp's sister could have runs his life, and I invited her to come to this get the to see me get this award, and um, she had to tell Johnny that 
where she was going to be because she really is totally in charge of every minute of his life. And she told him where she was going to go with this thing with Linda and she's going to get this award. And though I was on my way out, we were on our way out the door and I hear Linda, Linda. And I turn around and there's Johnny and Tim following me saying, we just want to say congratulations. It's like, wow. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> that's pretty great. That's amazing. <laughs> it was humbling and great. It's like, wow, it's pretty awesome. So what needs to happen in the world of storytellers for writers to begin to feel honored again? Well, it's a really, really tricky thing. Um, I'm in a position because of my body of work. My, my body of work. But it isn't just two, I wouldn't have as much. But I have, a, I have a large body of work now with a high box office, which is a really important combination. I've never written, done an independent film. I have a large box office and a body of work. So that gives me credibility hard-won credibility. So um, I have a, a big voice and I have a big personality. And when I go and I speak on panels to writers, I really press, I really push that not just to think of yourself as a second-class citizen because that's the way they treat you. Because it's not true. You know, you are the source of everything. And um, to know that, it's a really... It's an internal knowledge, an understanding of yourself in the culture and the importance. And um, that's what I want to convey to writers. It's an attitude more than anything. They're not going to give you your power. Nobody's going to go, oh, here, we were wrong. Here's your power. You have to own it. You have to take it. And you have to have the best story in the world and land it on the table in front of them. You do. If you don't have the goods, you got to have the goods. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna finish by asking, you know, if <laughs> if that microphone is connected to thousands of storytellers and you could tell them anything, what would you tell them? And you you may or may not have just answered that question, but if this is your chance, if if you had thousands of people and you seem like the type of person that would just go one by one and put your hands on their shoulder yes. and look into their eyes yes. and give them a hug what would you tell that storyteller listening? Because they're listening to you going, oh, to have that kind of career, to be a part of that many, you know, box office hits, to to succeed at taking on Lewis Carroll and paying tribute and honoring him and to work with directors like Tim Burton. There's just so many things. They're going, what do I, what does she know that I need to know? What would you tell I, them? But I didn't always have that. I wasn't that. I was you. I was you. <laughs> sure. I was just like everybody else. I mean, so there's no difference between, you know, if you're a writer, you're a writer. If you're a writer, and I know a lot of people who want to be writers, if you're a writer, a writer sits down or stands up or whatever do you do to put your story into the world, that's what you do. That's what you are. That's what I am. I, it's write or die for me. I don't know what I would do if someone said you can't make up stories anymore. I don't know what I'd do, you know. And they belong to you. They're yours. It's your power. You have it. It's all within your grasp. And you can go to Wonderland. I'm not the only one, you know. I'm not the only one who has an imagination. Look around. Look at all the artists and, and just believe in yourself and don't believe that there's 
don't buy that there's a, some sort of limit on you because of where you come from or how you were raised or your education or you know what color you are or your your gender definition of yourself don't believe it it's not true you are a soul that has a lot of stories to tell in, in a body that's had a lot of experiences and we want to hear them we need you yeah we need you that's so true did you feel needed when you first started this career yes i did i felt bell was really important didn't know if i was going to succeed but i didn't back down yeah i'm so glad that you were courageous and pushed through uh, <laughs> look now look at the gifts that you've given the world it's awesome well the world has given me back a lot of gifts <laughs> as well <laughs> I love how much Linda fights for the things that she believes in. When was the last time that you fought for an idea that you believed in, like really believed in? I hope that Linda's story is an inspiration to you and the story that is inside of you. And it's true, Story 2018 wouldn't be happening as it is without the influence of Linda's otherworldly imagination. So if you want to fall down the rabbit hole with us for two days, Join us in Nashville, Tennessee on September 20th and 21st, because once you experience Wonderland, you will never be the same. Head over to story2018.com to get your ticket today. I can't wait to see you there. <laughs>